Hello and welcome back to the Sakis podcast, Making Adjustments, where we take a thoughtful dive into an element of culture or a current event that could benefit from a few healthy adjustments. If you're new here, Sakis is a sexual assault counseling and information service. And between us and our satellite office, CASA, we serve nine counties in southeastern Illinois. It's our vision to mitigate and reduce sexual violence, advocate for social justice in all of our communities, and provide client-centered services to all survivors of sexual violence while working to address systems of oppression. January is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and in today's episode, we talk with special guest Liesl Wingert about trafficking in rural areas, specifically familial trafficking and all that entails. Stay tuned during and after the episode for some upcoming community events and additional resources regarding familial-based trafficking. Well, welcome back to the Sakis podcast, Making Adjustments. My name's Alyssa, and today we have a special guest with us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Liesl Wingert. I am with the SIU School of Medicine, Center for Rural Health and Social Service Development, and I am the Rural Health Project Coordinator for the Eastern Region of SIU School of Medicine. So I have about 20 or 30 counties over here on this side of Illinois that I am in charge of. Wow, that is a lot of counties and a long title. (laughs) It is a long title. It would be nice if it was shortened a little bit, but at least you have an idea of what I do. Yeah. Well, you know where I'm at anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you do in that role? Sure. My job is to get into those counties and take a look around, see what's going on socially, medically, making connections with whether it's health departments or service organizations or hospitals, interagency groups, drug coalitions, you name it. I get into those communities and meet people and then begin to help them process what's going on, connecting the dots to good collaborations um, within the community to help them improve their situations. So I may be in an interagency meeting for a year or two before I really get to know what's going on in that community. Right now, I could take my pick from a myriad of topics that are going on in those communities, but probably the number one topic centers around addiction and recovery services and mental health. And for me, that tied very directly into the addiction and recovery piece of it has tied into children who are living in drug-endangered homes because they're the ones that kind of get lost in the shuffle. But in my role, I will meet up with lots of different people that are working in those service fields, Mm -hmm. and I will help them connect the dots to expand their services, to find grant money. Sometimes I am helping to write the grants. Usually the organizations themselves do that, or I'm helping them to put together the different people that need to be a part of that grant in order to get funding for their projects. So... Another area might be expansion of sober living facilities or helping somebody find um, an appropriate rehabilitation or a detox facility or just the process from detox to rehab to sober living and what happens with their kids. Sometimes that means working with grandparents raising grandchildren, of which I am a grandparent raising a grandchild for that reason. And talking a lot about peer recovery specialists. And we talk about 
expansion of appropriate um, medical care for families, for children. It all ties in. It all ties in. And it's just a part of what the School of Medicine chooses to do is to put somebody in this area to be able to have eyes on the situation and help connect the dots and hopefully expand the resources across the region. That sounds like a very important job and a very big job. One that I bet took a while to to see out like the outcomes of things once you yes. put practices into play. I guess. And I have been in this position for five years now and it really it took a solid year or two to really get into these counties, get to the meetings, meet other people, figure out what was needed over here. And there's there's a myriad of needs. Those right. are just some of them. But the top needs are centering around drugs and recovery as well as mental health and slipping into that kind of on the back side um, became aware of what's called familial human trafficking, which I think is why we're going to be talking today. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I guess from there, let's go a little bit with how your work connects to human trafficking. Well, anything regarding drugs is going to connect to human trafficking. Where I came in on this was totally through the back door, totally through the back door. Um, And when I first took this job, there was already a project underway in Fayette County to bring in national drug-endangered children trainers, Eric Nation and Stacy Reed from the National Alliance for Drug-Endangered Children. And that was already set up, and I went to this particular conference to do the SIU thing and help and, and do my thing, and I was floored by the time I came out of that day-long training. Walked away from this knowing that the need is great and starting to connect the dots in my mind from some of my previous work and seeing that this need is probably greater than what we all thought. So fast forward a couple of years, um, our Richland County Drug Coalition, it's called the Richland County Addictions Prevention Coalition or the RCAPC, got to have a synonym mm-hmm. for everything, um, or an acronym rather, um, and brought up this training to them. And long story short, all the community partners went together and we brought the national trainers in here to do a training for our school systems. And we had two counties full of school systems that were here. So we had about five or 600 people at this training. And all of them, educators, law enforcement, WIC, pediatricians, um, people that work within medication-assisted therapy, so providers that way, lots of different service organizations. WIC was there, I believe. I believe we even had CASA was there um, for that training. And when we did this training, what came out of that was the development of a local drug-endangered children's alliance. And word started spreading. And we started working with other communities that said, we need to have this in here. Okay, we're good. We can do that. Um, Ultimately, the National Drug-Endangered Children's Alliance asked myself and Brad Amateur, our school resource officer, to train, to be a trainer for them. Here in Illinois, there's now several of us that do the training. Brad and I really are over here on this side. But as I started doing that training and really delving into the details, I began to see some serious connection between what's called 
familial human trafficking, which is human trafficking that happens inside the home, inside the family home. And most of the time, it is tied to drug use. And almost all of the time, that trafficking is happening to a child in the home or multiple children in the home. So as we started putting that together and I started reaching out to some other contacts to get a little more information on this, I met uh, Patricia McKnight, who is with Butterfly Dreams here in Illinois, and she is a family human trafficking survivor. Her family, her parents, um, trafficked her within their home throughout the majority of her childhood and where that led to what happened with that. And then also came into contact with a woman in Texas who works for the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. So she, our equivalent of DCFS, but she is a program specialist with them. She is also a licensed counselor. And this is really her specialization. As I've spent time with both of these women, we began to connect dots to rural areas. Research, very recent research from the Fourth National Incidence Study of Child Abuse and Neglect has come out that rural children are twice as likely or more than children who live in an urban setting to suffer maltreatment of some sort. This can be tied directly to family human trafficking. And I can go on a little bit more about that if you'd like me to. Yeah, why don't we just, I guess, keep going on this thread and you can give us a little bit more information about familial trafficking, maybe how it presents in the counties that you've seen. You don't have to give specific examples, but just um, some broad information because I think people have a lot of misconceptions about what human trafficking looks like. We think of it in like a city mindset or an immigrant mindset. Um, when around here, that's not generally what it looks like. Not in the rural areas. Usually when we think of human trafficking, we think of somebody that has their, they have gang involvement or a child that's been kidnapped and put into the underground trafficking world. Or there's a, a pimp that has, you know, 20 women that he's, he or she is buying and selling. Um, this is different. Family human trafficking, as I said, happens in the home. And the most likely person to be doing the trafficking, believe it or not, is the child's mother. It can be any caregiver. It can be other family members. But what we know in relation to drug-endangered children, that it is most often the mother. And the, the statistics are pretty high. And we don't have a lot of statistics to work with because this has been something that has been hidden for a very long time. But we know it's been going on. So there's the only broker is, is the mother, if you will. It is family-driven. It is in the home. The child comes home from school, and mom may look at them and say, you've got a job tonight, and your room is ready. Why don't you, here's a peanut butter sandwich, eat that, and you go in, you're going to work tonight. Now, as, as the, the clients, if you will, come in, and out and in and out of that house in an urban setting in the big city we might notice right. that there's multiple people coming in and out of that home or in and out of that apartment if you will in a rural setting it's much much easier to hide and you say well you know a rural setting small town everybody knows everything they do you're right they do but small towns are also very good at times of hiding things or turning away or Potentially, law enforcement doesn't have enough staff to really search it out. 
or potentially, you know, child protective services doesn't put a lot of attention in that area. But, you know, in their defense, law enforcement and child protective services, we have to remember that they can only see what they can see. And this is happening in a home very quietly and nobody's talking. So these children do typically have some involvement with the welfare system, but not from that perspective. Where they get turned in typically is for neglect or maltreatment. The child is coming in dirty to school all the time or they're really tired or they're not, they've not had enough to eat. That kind of thing we might see more frequently with familial trafficking. And why is that? Well, let's, I'm just going to pick on, I'm going to use mom as the example because that's the most likely scenario. Mom is trafficking this child to get money for drugs. And this may go on till two, three in the morning or may go on all night, you know, depending. So that child, if they make it to school the next day, of course, they're exhausted. And Typically, these, these particular children in the home are sort of a, um, a dispensable commodity. They're not the favorite child. Oftentimes, they are the child that is least well-liked. And so mom doesn't really care. They don't really care whether the child has a bath or brushes their teeth or gets sleep or has enough food. So therefore, these children may show up to school presenting this way. They're also taught not to talk. Don't talk don't talk. And it may be a threat. It may be a gun. It may be a good solid beating if you want. And good is not the right word to put there. But that child knows that the threat is real, that if they talk, then something bad is going to happen. Tied into that in a very sick way, we have to remember that these children are dependent on their caregiver or their parent. If it's a parent it's even doubly worse from a psychological standpoint because we innately grow up or are born dependent on the person who's taking care of us. And these children, you can imagine the psychological confusion. Well, this must, is this right? Well, it must be right because I trust, I'm taught to trust my mom and dad. And these kids don't get to go to the birthday parties and, you know, the roller skating rink and all the fun things that other kids get to do because they're working. And so they're not exposed to it really until they get into a more of an older school age. They begin to look around and see that other kids have it maybe a little different. And yet we don't talk. We still don't talk because I might get beaten. Or, you know, the parent may guilt that child into this action saying, well, mama can't have her medicine if you don't work. You know, I need Mm -hmm. you to do this work so that mama can have her medicine or your little brother Joey is not going to get fed tonight because we can't afford groceries unless you do your work tonight. So you can imagine the psychological turmoil going on with that child. Mm -hmm. And it is a different treatment process. You know, we know that when we think of the stereotypical human traffickers, we know that those, we know that's wrong and a child is abducted and they're sold into this or they, they're told this is what you have to do. We know that's wrong. But when your mom is telling you this in your home and it's happening in your bedroom, 
it looks different and it feels different and psychologically we process that differently. Right. So the concern is that we don't have much in the way of treatment for these kiddos. It's and you pull that child out of the home, let's say it's discovered and you pull them out of the home, then they're going to go into foster care, but it's not like a situation where we can fix mom and dad and mm-hmm. send that child back. You know, with drugs, with a drug addiction, we can we can heal that. We have ways to do This is different. This is a different psychological base going on here. So when we pull those kids out of the home, it looks different. It's more permanent. These children, you know, the statistics show us as young as four. I will tell you that I've had a case um, in the last 15 years of a couple of, it was twins that were three, four, five months old, and parents were selling them for drug money. Um, But it can also be somebody as old as, you know, a teenager. Right. And I've had a case within the last 30 years, and I didn't connect it until I started working with this. But this was a young woman who was maybe 12 or 13, the school, very tiny young woman, maybe 70 pounds, dripping wet, and she was showing up to school every day, and her clothes were baggier and baggier. And finally, the school nurse discovered she was nine months pregnant. And when I got called into that case, because at the time I was working as a doula, which is a professional labor and birth assistant. And I worked with teen moms specifically. I also taught childbirth classes and did lactation consulting. So it all tied in, brought me in. And as we talked with this young lady and she began slowly and it took weeks for her to let her guard down and we've got an impending birth happening quickly. What we found out is that her older brother was selling her to her, to his friends. An older brother was probably late teens early 20s and they lived in an extremely rural area so nobody saw it nobody knew and she didn't know what to say she didn't know what who to tell right so we had an interesting case with that but and when I look back that is family trafficking that is family trafficking this has been going on and as we delve deeper as I talk to law enforcement and they're shaking their heads yes they know it's happening but it's so hard to find it. Right. And do you feel like this sort of trafficking continues, I guess, in cycles? Um, do we see that a lot? We do know that there is intergenerational issues going on here. Um, I have had a case where, and these people are long, I mean, the older generation they're long gone Mm -hmm. and now we've got a generation of 60 70 year olds who have been in that cycle you know 60 years ago and we're beginning to see where they promoted that themselves because again there's a sense of this is okay this is the way I did things and especially if you grew up as a small child with your parent or caregiver or older brother or sister telling you that this was an okay thing you're going to believe that if you've been formed in your developmental years to think that that's all right exactly and that but once again that makes it so hard to untangle later on Mm -hmm. you know when we look at the age of these kids our younger kids they're not going to try and run away 
again, this is kind of their norm. And they may have a gut feeling something is off or this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. But they're not so likely to run away. As kids get older and they, they get into those teen years and they have legs that move and friends that drive, they have a better access to be able to run away from it. But once again, you have that family psychological piece to it that they know that there's going to be a consequence to pay. And if, let's say, that that particular sister runs away and there's three younger sisters below her, she knows that those sisters are going to be the ones drug into it. Right. Um, and so there's a method sometimes of protecting another sibling. Um, some of the other things we see with these kids is they typically, the child typically doesn't have the substance use disorder right then. Now, as adults, as young adults, we begin seeing them trying to dull the pain, dull mm -hmm. the confusion, because now they're a little more out in the world, and they see, wait a minute, this isn't the way things are done. So we might see that later. But typically with the children, we don't see them drugged up. And the reason is that would be something that the schools might detect, the right. doctors might detect. Yeah. One thing that might be a red flag, and it's a red flag anywhere, would be a, a young child with a, a sexually transmitted infection. Of course, we're going to check into that mm -hmm. and probably do a more extensive search. But that's dependent on the parent taking the child to the doctor or the emergency room. And usually it's pretty far into the process before they do that. These children oftentimes have terrible dental issues. And if you think about it, a young child and a, a grown man, um, oral sex is probably going to be one of the main pieces of it. And these children are not, they have no um, thought process of dental care. Mm -hmm. And so by the time they become young or young teens or even young adults, the, the dental issues are just beyond excessive at that point. It is an incredibly horrible situation to look at. These families move often. Um, it's just easy. And I've had a case where a landlord caught what was going on. And the mother knew that the landlord was going to go make this report. And before the report was probably even processed, that mother had picked up her children. And she had foster children also and mm -hmm. moved. And nobody knew where she went. Left everything behind. So these children... Um, have lost everything you know they left their favorite teddy bear behind or their clothes or whatever because they just pick up and move it's just part of it want to stay up to date on community events be sure to follow us on facebook as SACUS and instagram and twitter as at team SACUS. our prevention team is hosting a free human trafficking 101 training at eastern illinois university on february 15th and lunch will be provided to register for this event, email stephanie at sacus.org. We will also be in the EIU Union's Bridge Lounge on February 22nd from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. for Cocoa and Consent, where we'll be handing out free hot chocolate, giveaways, and resources on consent. We hope to see you there. Could you tell us a little bit about like some red flags, how it's identified, where this type is identified? Is it mostly schools? I'm assuming. These children are identified at a myriad of levels. Mm -hmm. Most often, there's some type of child welfare involvement. That's a given. So theoretically, we would like to think they're the ones that are finding this or seeing this or suspecting this. 
but we also know caseloads are really high with child welfare. You know, if it's not going to be something easy to identify, they may not be as willing to pursue it if it's not really a blatant thing. But child welfare, law enforcement occasionally, especially if it's in relation to drugs, Mm -hmm. they're going to be looking. But we'll talk a little more, just a little about that, because when we talk about seeing forward change, this is one of those areas that we're seeing forward change. And also medical personnel. If that child really becomes deathly ill Mm -hmm. from something, and if they're getting, you know, repeat sexual transmitted infections, um, they're going to get sick and probably need to go to the doctor. Although I will say, you know, the very, very, very worst cases that we see that pop up in the news, you know, a child may die before that parent gets them where they need to be. We don't see that real often, but we may not be looking for it either. So with that being said, some of the red flags, um, these children are involved usually with child welfare in some way, most often for neglect Mm -hmm. of some sort. Somebody turned that in, maybe a teacher. They are going to have excessive absences from school. They're too tired to come or they don't feel good. And mom by then or the parent or the caregiver, whoever's doing this is... You know, they've used their drugs and they're not getting them up to go to school. So we may not, they may come in and out. These children are going to have odd injuries, okay? A a child might, a little girl might sit and wiggle and wiggle and wiggle and wiggle at school because her bottom hurts. Mm -hmm. And then we begin to see some some strange things. Um, Bruising, we'll see bruising on these children. But again, sometimes the caregiver is, is astute and has them put on long sleeves like a heavy sweatshirt in the middle of the summer to cover things up that kind of thing so injuries we see the doctor visits sometimes not all the time usually it's late in the process the doctor or the er or convenient care these children will have um, mood or behavior or appearance changes go from seemingly okay to all of a sudden things have changed and it might be maybe mom has a new boyfriend in the home Mm -hmm. and maybe that's when the drugs begin. There are things to keep your eyes open to and a lot of these will mirror just generalized sexual abuse anyway, not just human trafficking. The child may or may not run away from home. Again, young children can't. Older children have a better opportunity to do that. The sexually transmitted infection should be cause for alarm if if a child has that there's no good reason for a child to have that Um, when we see child suicide a young child or a young teenager that is attempting suicide we need to start asking those questions sometimes it's more than just surface issues once again it's very deeply ingrained in their mind and in their brain not to tell the threats the threats are very very real for them Um, to be beaten or um, they're intimidated or guilted into this situation. Self-harm, and we are seeing an incredible rise in self-harm with our young people. And I think that kind of mirrors this incredible rise in substance use disorder. And I wonder if the two are connected. I don't have research sitting right right here but I wonder if the two are connected Mm -hmm. that we've got parents that are doing things or caregivers that are doing things that shouldn't be happening Um, these children 
there's no way that they don't will have depression and anxiety issues as well as PTSD issues Mm -hmm. um, that may last a lifetime if we don't get them out of that home and show them a different way to live. So those are some of the the bigger red flags um, when it comes to to or familial human trafficking. But again, you know, those are duplicatable with other signs of abuse and neglect that we might see. So it's hard to spot them. Where are we actually or are we actually seeing any forward movement in identifying and getting these children into safer places, um, especially and I guess specifically in this area or the areas that you serve? In rural areas, it is still very difficult, and we are still very early in the process of what I call awareness. And on the one hand, that word seems very slow to me. You know, we want movement. We want to fix this. But I've come to learn that awareness is often the first step. So as I go out and do drug-endangered children training with Brad Amateur, our school resource officer, we have a whole section in this that is just familial human trafficking where we discuss it because of the intersection between drug-endangered children and, and human trafficking. Awareness to law enforcement officers. Just did a, a deck a drug endangered children's training um, up in Paris, Illinois, the other night. And we had um, the local county sheriff, we had a county detective, and we had a state trooper there. And when I started talking about this piece of things, and I was looking over at that table, there was about 40, 40 or fifty people at this training. Looked over at that table, and I saw them shaking their heads, yes. And I, and I looked at them, they were all men, and I said, gentlemen, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is something that you probably know is going on, but you have no proof with which to, and they right. were shaking their heads, yes. Yeah. So awareness. If we've got the awareness that it's happening, we're going to be looking for it. And eventually somebody's going to trip themselves up, mm-hmm. and it's going to be found. But awareness is the biggest piece. And through our drug-endangered tr- children's trainings that we're doing all in this region, this is being, we're starting to talk about it. And then we've got, you know, national people like Ada McLeod, like I said, or statewide people like Patricia McKnight that are working on this. And um, I will be speaking with a group in Fairview Heights that is being headed up by the U.S. Assistant State's Attorney, um, Karalia Raja Gopal has asked me to come speak and I said you know who's going to be at that (laughs) and she's DEA social service you know we've got some pretty high level folks state police so forth and beginning to make those connections as to what's going on because they're seeing it but unless we're talking about it nobody knows quite what to say Mm -hmm. because this is it's it's a dirty secret and I don't care if you are a prominent family or if you are a end of the socioeconomic ladder it doesn't matter if it can still be hidden and these kids are suffering and it's our job nobody else is going to step in on it if we don't speak up so awareness is where we're seeing forward movement the national drug endangered children's alliance has now added a separate little piece of training that goes in with this partly because of the work of all these people and I think that's going to help move move the needle forward um, towards awareness on a much larger scale. 
Well, is there anything else that you wanted to share um, or that you would like to say that you think would be helpful for people to know? Not really. I think I've probably said enough. Yeah, but. you've given us a lot of good information. Thank you for being willing to be on the podcast today. You're welcome. It was good to be here. Thanks for having me. If you would like some more information on the SAU School of Medicine and their community health programming, please visit the link in the description below. In addition, we've also provided a link to a great resource on the connection between drug-endangered children and human trafficking from the National Alliance for Drug-Endangered Children. To learn more about the services that SACUS and CASA offer, you can visit our website, SACUS.org. Thank you again to Liesl for lending her time and expertise, and we will see you back here in February.